You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 66, Master of France. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. We left off last time in early 1802, in the wake of the Treaty of Amiens. All of Europe was celebrating, but Napoleon had no intention of resting on his laurels. He was already in the preliminary stages of a massive, ambitious reform agenda, which would soon see the entire country transformed and lay the foundations for modern France. We'll start out this episode with a bit of an anticlimax. On the afternoon of August 3rd, 1802, Bonaparte was at the Tuileries Palace, his official primary residence and main place of business. He was in a meeting with a group of foreign ambassadors when he was interrupted by a delegation of senators, bearing urgent news. In the preceding weeks, France had held yet another referendum. The legislators had gone to the palace that afternoon to inform the first consul that the results were in and had just been ratified by the Senate. French voters had been given a single question, quote, Will Napoleon Bonaparte be consul for life? End quote. A whopping 99.76% had responded, yes. Once again, numbers that would have made Saddam Hussein jealous. Out of more than 7 million eligible voters, only just over 8,000 had turned out to vote no. However, well over 3 million hadn't even bothered showing up, over half the electorate. There was no secret ballot, so clearly there were many who considered it unwise to put their opposition to Bonaparte on record, or were simply too alienated from politics to take part in this charade. Unlike in the last referendum, there actually doesn't seem to have been much manipulation from the central government. This time, there hadn't been any need. Publicly, Napoleon had kept this whole process at arm's length. When his Council of State debated the matter, Bonaparte scrupulously recused himself, as if it wasn't obvious who called the shots and what his wishes were. 
he actually left Paris altogether for his country estate, Malmaison, to ensure he was out of the picture during the election. The official propaganda line was that this referendum was initiated by others in the government, who were responding to public opinion, which demanded Napoleon be rewarded for restoring peace to Europe. Of course, that supposed groundswell of public opinion was largely orchestrated by Napoleon's PR machine, and his underlings had all but ordered the relevant government officials to bring about the referendum. The original plan had been to force this change through the legislature, without a vote from the people. Napoleon believed his record, and the results of the last national referendum, held only two years earlier, gave him a mandate to claim the title of First Consul for Life. However, the legislature had proved resistant to this idea. They were mostly veterans of revolutionary politics, and those who still had any personal convictions tended to be Republicans and Constitutionalists. Even many who had lost their revolutionary fervor couldn't stand the idea of the last ten years of political struggle culminating in sheepishly handing power over to one man. And so, the Senate rejected the idea of lifetime tenure, and instead voted to extend Napoleon's term of office another ten years. In public, Napoleon gratefully accepted this honor. In private, he was furious. He got his revenge on that afternoon in August of 1802. Events had been orchestrated so that it was the Senate themselves who brought the news to Napoleon, and they were forced to give it to him in front of an audience of foreign dignitaries. Napoleon pretended this was all a coincidence, but he also had a pre-written speech prepared for the occasion, hidden in the crown of his hat. From that speech, quote, I am, from this moment, on a level with other sovereigns, for, ultimately, they are like me, rulers for their lifetime only. They and their ministers will have more respect for me now. The power of a man who turns all the affairs of Europe around his little fingers should not be, or seem to be, based on a precarious foundation. End quote. I think we can look at this whole event almost like a ritual act of submission. These senators who had defied the First Consul's wishes being forced to bend the knee. The presence of the foreign ambassadors meant the news of the Senate's capitulation would spread far and wide. And it ensured good behavior. No one would dare make a scene if it meant causing a diplomatic incident and embarrassing France in front of her rivals. And so, the last fig leaf of normal Republican government was stripped away. There was no longer any pretending the consulate was a democratic regime. In Bonaparte's own speech, he claimed he was now equivalent to the monarchs of Europe. Napoleon was legally a dictator. The first consul was just shy of his 33rd birthday. A man of his age in 19th century France was likely to live at least into his 50s probably even his 60s or 70s. France had probably just signed up for at least two more decades of Bonapartism. It's quite striking how little resistance there was to this final step towards dictatorship. 
it was almost more of a formality than a major political development. One of the senators summed up the situation quite well. Quote, They want us to give France a master. What is to be done? Any resistance from now on would be pointless. Whole armies would be needed to oppose it. The only thing to be done is keep quiet. It is the course of action I have taken. End quote. There you have it. It's remarkable to hear a politician speak so candidly about his own powerlessness. But the senator was right. What could he do? The foundations of dictatorship had been laid long ago. The time to stop Bonaparte had come and gone years earlier. This slide towards dictatorship was reflected in the aesthetics and routines of the consulate as well. The days of revolutionary austerity were long over. The privileged circle around Napoleon increasingly came to resemble a royal court. After nearly two years in office, Bonaparte was finally beginning to look the part. He was still quite young to be wielding absolute power in his early thirties, but he cut a much more imposing figure than he had in his twenties. When he'd first arrived in Paris, Napoleon looks like a caricature, rail-thin with long disheveled hair hanging over his collar, and perpetually muddy boots poking out from under a long shabby overcoat, like a morose scarecrow. Now that he was on campaign less, spending more time indoors and eating regular meals, his physique had finally filled out. In between his gaunt twenties and the hunched, portly Napoleon we know from popular culture, there were a few years in which he was an average, healthy weight. Shortly after taking office, he cut off his famous long hair. This had been a fashionable look in the early days of the Revolution, but by 1799 it was becoming passé. Now he wore his hair medium length, cut to resemble the styles on Roman statues another aspect of the mania for classical history during this period. During his rise to fame, Napoleon was almost always depicted in his general's uniform. A double-breasted blue jacket with a sash dyed in the red, white, and blue of the Revolution. But remember, he had technically resigned from the army to take his position as first consul. On paper, at least, he was a civilian government official. But Napoleon couldn't stand being out of uniform, and had his tailors design an official first consul's outfit, a double-breasted tailcoat in bright red adorned with gold trim and skin-tight white pants decorated like cavalry breeches. During this period, this is how Napoleon generally appeared in public, and how he preferred to be depicted in art. Josephine was one of the driving forces behind these changes. She was a keen student of etiquette and ceremony, and understood they could be important tools in the wielding of power. Napoleon actually dispatched agents around the country to track people down who had been attendants or members of the court of King Louis XVI to pick their brains about proper court protocol. We can only imagine how frightened these people must have been when a man from the revolutionary government showed up at their doorstep. It wasn't so long ago that any association with the former king could put a person in mortal danger. The government had once hunted these people to take their heads, 
Now it wanted their advice on good manners. As we've discussed in past episodes, Napoleon II understood the power of splendor and the utility of making himself remote and elevated above his subordinates. This was also yet another olive branch to the conservatives, who Napoleon was eager to bring into the fold. The decade of conservative opposition to the central government had cost France dearly. Napoleon wanted to unite the country, making the government seem a little more familiar to the right by returning to some elements of monarchy was a part of this process. We'll have more to say about Bonaparte's outreach to conservatives in the near future. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. For the rest of this episode, I'd like to introduce the most significant item on Napoleon's reform agenda, the Code Civil des Français, generally known in English as the Napoleonic Code. People sometimes ask me, what was Napoleon's greatest achievement? If you're looking for a short, concise answer, it's probably the Napoleonic Code. You could point to some broader achievements, the spread of the Enlightenment, the use of rational modern principles in governance, or the destruction of so many of the old regimes of Europe, or the revolution in military affairs, in which Napoleon played an important role. But these are all kind of ephemeral, hard to quantify. If we're talking about discrete, tangible parts of Napoleon's legacy, I don't think any one thing looms larger than the civil code. And don't just take my word for it. Napoleon himself shared this view. He said the memory of his law code would outlast that of all his battlefield victories. He may have been underestimating people's romantic attachment to battle stories, but I think the point stands. Certainly, if we're talking about what's had more of an impact on people's lives today, Austerlitz, Marengo, Borodino are not much more than answers on a history exam, or the names of town squares or subway stations. Whereas the Napoleonic Code is part of the very fabric of modern society. Ever since I started this show, I've been unsure how to approach the Napoleonic Code. It's a truly massive topic. Someone with a good handle of legal history could probably produce an entire podcast series on just the code and never run out of material. For one thing, it's a very long document. Modern editions typically run over 500 pages. That said, the language is relatively plain and accessible. You probably need to be a lawyer or a scholar to understand all the ins and outs, and grasp the true significance of every provision. But a reasonably intelligent, literate person can at least get the gist of the Napoleonic Code. 
although they would probably be bored to tears if they actually sat down and tried to read the whole thing. That might seem like a small thing, but for much of history, this was not the case. In many past human societies, the law was esoteric knowledge, deliberately kept obscure from the common people. Napoleon wasn't the first person to try to democratize the law, but accessibility is an important feature of the code. Despite the relatively plain language, unpacking and analyzing every clause of the Napoleonic Code would be an incredible undertaking. And that's without even addressing its broader historical and social significance. So what I'm trying to say here is that we won't be poring over all the legal minutiae contained within those 500 or so pages. Not even close. I know I just finished explaining how important the civil code is, and the fact that it's not terribly hard to read, but I'm not a lawyer, and this isn't a legal podcast. However, I do think it's important to go into some detail discussing the impact of the code. For starters, it's worth emphasizing just how influential this document is. The Napoleonic Code provides the basis for the legal systems of all of Europe, with the exception of the UK and Ireland, Russia and all the former satellite states of the USSR, all of East Asia, with the exception of Hong Kong, most of Africa, with the exception of former British colonies, and all of the Americas, with the exceptions of Canada, the US, and the British Caribbean, although both Quebec and Louisiana use civil code-based systems. Most Middle Eastern countries use a modified form of civil law, which incorporates some elements of traditional Islamic jurisprudence. So there are some pretty large and prominent countries missing from that list, taken together somewhere around a third of the world's population, which is obviously nothing to sneeze at. But most of these countries use some version of common law, a system which developed from traditional English jurisprudence. But common law, by its nature, is highly adaptable, always evolving, and over the course of the last 200 years, common law systems have borrowed quite a bit from Napoleonic-style civil law. So, all of this is just a very long-winded way to say that there's no place on Earth untouched by the influence of Napoleon's civil code. It is the direct ancestor of the legal systems of a large number of countries, one of a few major influences of the legal systems of an even larger number of countries, and has at least had an indirect impact on every single legal system in the world. I would be willing to bet the Napoleonic Code has touched the life of every listener to this show, to one degree or another. On the most basic level, if you've ever owned something or been party to a contract— you've probably brushed up against some concepts which have their origins in the Napoleonic Code. But there's also a deeper significance. The Civil Code helped create some of the most fundamental conceptual underpinnings of modern society. On the surface, civil law is a pretty boring topic. There's a good reason TV legal dramas tend to focus on criminal law, We're talking about the rules which govern contracts, property, and the family, relationships between people, and between people and institutions. It's not very romantic, but these relationships govern our daily lives in a way the criminal code does not, unless you're a professional criminal. 
a country's approach to civil law defines a lot of how it functions day to day, what its values are, and who holds power, in ways people often don't even notice. As they say, fish don't know what water is, and in the same way, we don't give much thought to the laws which regulate even our most basic interactions and define the roles we play in society. Even at home, none of us are free from the influence of civil law. It governs the family. It defines property ownership for homeowners and contractual obligations between renters and landlords. It follows you to the workplace, where it mediates the relationship between bosses and workers and defines the rights and obligations of business owners. I think you can see why a man like Napoleon, who wanted to reshape his country, was so interested in civil law. Changing society through legislation or government decree is hard, slow work, as anyone who has ever worked in politics can attest. Reforming civil law is almost like a shortcut. It influences everything else forms part of the fabric of daily life, and shapes the experiences of every citizen. In a sense, civil law is the foundation on which everything else rests. The government, business, finance, civil society, even culture. Shift the foundation, and the whole edifice must either move or crumble. Napoleon correctly saw legal reform as the best, most powerful domestic policy tool at his disposal. And of course, it also appealed to his romantic side. Many of his greatest historical heroes had also been lawgivers. They too had recognized the power of the law and used it to shape their own countries and those they conquered. Now Bonaparte would follow in their footsteps. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I think the best way to understand the impact of the Napoleonic Code is by looking at specific examples. Like almost every other type of legal procedure, inheritance was governed by the Code. Under the new regulations a person had relatively little control over what happened to his or her estate after death. Under the Napoleonic Code, people were free to leave one quarter of their assets to whomever they chose, but the law required that the remaining three quarters be divided equally between the sons of the deceased. This relatively simple rule had nearly endless implications for French society. For starters, it ensured that property would generally be owned by men. 
It would still be possible for women to own land or capital, but this explicit legal preference for male inheritance ensured that would be an uncommon exception, not the norm. Napoleon was a firm believer in traditional gender roles, and we can see that reflected throughout the document. This is only one example. He saw a clear separation between the world of men and the world of women, and he believed property ownership and the responsibilities of the head of a household belonged in the former. It is also significant that the law called for the division of the estate between the sons of the deceased. This feature of the article had profound socioeconomic implications particularly for rural areas, where land ownership meant everything. Even a relatively small, simple matter like inheritance might have a lot to say about a big, fundamental question, like, what would be the structure of the rural French economy? Would the countryside be populated by small-holding peasants, each holding his own little plot of land, and growing whatever he wished? Or would it be dominated by large estates, where a handful of individual landowners were able to marshal massive resources and manpower towards their own ends. This was more than just a question of who owned the deed to which land. These two models would lead to very different rural economies. For example, there are crops and farming techniques which might be successful in one system, but not viable in the other. The Napoleonic Code's requirement that estates be divided between the sons of the deceased hindered the development of large estates. It would still be possible for large estates to develop. It wasn't illegal to acquire huge landholdings. But the law ensured that many of these would be broken up upon the owner's death. This relatively obscure point of inheritance law would leave an indelible stamp on the French countryside. It changed the structure of land ownership, which in turn changed the rural economy. And the economy in turn informs social structure and politics and almost everything else. It's a great example of how just one article of the code could have profound implications. One of the most important and revolutionary features of the Napoleonic Code was the way it defined property. Property as we know it did not exist under the old regime. Hardly anything in France was owned by a single person. The very concept was practically foreign. Under feudalism, it's probably more accurate to think of land as not being owned by anyone, but various people having certain legal rights over it. The king, the lord, and the peasant who lived on it and cultivated it. In some cases, an institution like a church, a guild, or a monastery might be somewhere in the mix as well. So, in a certain sense, nothing was property. Nobody had complete control over the land they owned. But, in another sense, everything was property, even things that we today would think of as part of the commonwealth not owned by anyone. For example, the right to administer justice over a given jurisdiction, known in French as a seigneurie, could be bought and sold on the open market, just like a house or a piece of land. There were roughly 70,000 seigneuries throughout France. Historically, they were owned by each area's feudal lord. 
but by the late 18th century, many had changed hands multiple times. They were owned by all kinds of people, from the oldest noble families in France to members of the rising bourgeoisie, whose recent ancestors had been peasants or laborers. A surprising number of administrative jobs and public duties were traded this way. Even skilled professional positions, like those of magistrates and clerks, were bought, sold, or inherited, with no regard to qualifications or experience. Even meat inspectors had to buy their jobs, either from the crown or from their predecessors. So as you can see, property was a very slippery concept under the old regime. Anything could be bought and sold, even little chunks of state power. But ultimately, no one really owned anything. A lot of things worked this way before the revolution, irrational and arbitrary a combination of old medieval tradition and half-implemented early modern absolutism. The old regime's muddled conception of property was a perfect fit for its clunky, chaotic political system. In fact, the two were essentially one and the same. There was no separation between the public and private sphere, between public good and private interest. Today, when public power meets private financial interest, We call it corruption. Under the old regime, it was simply how things were done. And so, when the revolutionaries sought to erase the monarchy and build a republic, they needed a new republican conception of property. Their innovations essentially created the concept we know today. The revolutionaries created a system of what they called absolute property under which almost all land and capital was owned by individuals, with more or less total control over their holdings. The days when public power could be bought and sold or inherited were over. Justice and administration became the exclusive province of the state. For the first time in history, there was a strict legal separation between what we would call the public sector, where people served the state and the people, and the private sector, where people sought their own profit however they saw fit. A lot of this argument comes from a fantastic book called The Great Demarcation by Rafe Blaufarb. I don't think I could do a better job of summing up why this is all so important, so I'll read a short passage here. Quote, The replacement of dependent, proprietary tenure with a system of full, independent ownership was the necessary precondition for free and equal citizenship. If left intact, the perpetual ties of proprietary hierarchy would impinge upon the citizen's freedom and make him the inferior of his lord. The abolition of the private ownership of public power was necessary to gather together the many fragments of public power held in private hands, as offices and seigneuries, and reunite them as a single, undivided national sovereignty. Without this step, election-based representative government could not function. If the scattered parcels of public power remained private properties, their owners would occupy public function by right. Had this situation persisted, there would have been no point in holding elections. Representative government could not have existed, and national sovereignty would have been a hollow concept. 
End quote. So there you have it. A modern conception of property is a necessary prerequisite of a modern state. Napoleon did not invent these concepts. They were first developed by forward-thinking legal scholars under the old regime, and first experimented with by earlier revolutionary governments. However, it was Napoleon who unified this new legal thinking into a single document, and imposed it on the entire country, and ensured that it spread beyond France's borders, both at the point of a bayonet in lands he conquered, and by example, as people tried to copy the strong state he created. The Napoleonic Code was the main conduit through which these radical new ideas left the ivory towers of the intellectuals, and entered the world, and began to shape it. I'll close out this discussion with another passage from Blaufarb. Quote, From the great demarcation of power and property flowed some of the key distinctions that constitute political modernity, between the political and the social, state and society, sovereignty and ownership, the public and the private. Rather than being either a social or a political revolution, 1789 was a moment that clarified the very distinction between the concepts of political and social. By honing the set of distinctions through which the world is perceived and acted upon, the Great Demarcation left a legacy that extends far beyond the French Revolution. It created a distinctly modern way of seeing. End quote. You might be thinking, this is a clever theory, but nothing but some grand speculation by an academic. Well, here's Napoleon himself on the topic. Quote, Why is there no public spirit in France? It is because the landowner is obliged to make his court to the administration. Decisions in land title cases are arbitrary. Whoever frames a good registration law will merit a statue. End quote. Obviously, that's not the same sophisticated, deep perspective you get from a modern academic. But clearly, Napoleon understood the link between property ownership, sovereignty, and civic culture. Hopefully, these examples have illustrated that when the French imposed the Napoleonic Code on nations they conquered, and when France's rivals embraced elements of Napoleonic law, they were adopting much more than a boring set of regulations on land ownership and inheritance. The Napoleonic Code was part of the blueprints of a new type of society. And these are just two examples. You can find all kinds of important concepts buried in the dull, dry pages of the Napoleonic Code. Hopefully this has helped hammer home some of the significance of Napoleon's legal reforms, without burying you in too much detail. Next time, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of how the Napoleonic Code came into being. If you believe Bonaparte's propaganda, the Code sprung forth from his mind fully formed, almost like God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. But obviously, he had a lot of help. Napoleon was a dilettante, not an actual legal scholar. Anyway, that's all for now. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. 
Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.